Hello and welcome back to Ruin Uncut. Today's topic, the problem with relatable characters. Now this one's I'm going to need to front load some basic information in here to you so you understand the perspective that I'm coming from here. Because today's topic is specifically about relatable characters in fiction. And more specifically, I want to say relatable characters in comedy, but this does apply to all fiction on a certain level. There are two things that are important to note from my own perspective for this episode. Thing number one, I grew up on a small hippie commune where I was homeschooled. I do, I do not walk through the life automatically assuming that I will relate to other human beings. In fact, I frequently assume that I will not, at least not on a basic level of shared experiences. I have many experiences that the average person has not had, and there is a surprising number of average person experiences that I haven't had. So therefore, I have one advantage in this topic, which is that I have gone through life not recognizing or relating to many characters in works of fiction, rarely ever seeing myself as the main character of most stories. Frankly, I found a lot of main characters highly annoying and we'll get into why in just a minute actually you know what i'll just get cut right to that i found a lot of characters annoying in fiction because you may or may not have become aware of this at some point when reading books or watching tv but a lot of fiction relies heavily on a main character who is essentially an audience self-insert character these main characters especially in young adult fiction from a certain era the era I grew up in is pretty common. The idea is to make the central character as relatable as possible by having them be extremely milquetoast and have a personality I would describe as default. They can't be too popular, but they also can't be the least popular kid in school. Take the weird balancing act that is Harry Potter who is both bullied and picked on by many in the school, but then also related to as essentially a messiah figure by other members of his school. Very strange balancing act if you think about it. But these milk toast audience insert characters always kind of annoyed me. I never really related to them because their experiences were exceptionally boring to me. And they all seem to be written the same way. These characters appear frequently throughout fiction. Go ahead, try to think of some ones off the top of your head. I bet you can. That is, if you are aware enough when absorbing media. Now I'm going to bring up two concepts I learned from studying theater and the history of theater. The first one is, is a playwright named Bertolt Brecht, with a very distinctive writing style that we even refer to things as Brechtian. Bertolt Brecht, Main, main idea that separated him from other playwrights was that he deliberately wrote things in a way so that the audience would be consistently aware of the fact that they were watching a play the entire time that they were watching it. This was referred to as alienation. Why did Bertolt Brecht do this? Why did Bertolt Brecht want to do away with the concept of suspending your disbelief? The answer was actually pretty simple. Bertolt Brecht believed that audiences, once emotionally invested in something, would lose 
the ability to understand the more intellectual concepts that he was trying to push, the moral themes and whatnot. Bertolt Brecht, but it was thought it was more important that the audience would learn his lesson than, say, get wrapped up in the emotions or characters of, of his stories. For Bertolt Brecht, the point was always to instigate thought, no matter how uncomfortable that was for an audience. This was a big deal for him. And his, the thing about it is, is that his theories aren't incredibly off base. The other theater history concept that I'm going to bring up here is the Greek theater, the Greek theory of comedy. Those who listen to my podcast have probably heard me talk about this before. The Greek theory of comedy or ancient Greek theory of comedy, not, not including satire or sat later to become satire, which many Greeks looked down upon because of its combining of tragic and comic comedic elements, something that used to be very frowned upon. The mixing of genres was not favored, not favored by them at all. However, the Greek theory of comedy essentially works like this. Comedy is about bad people succeeding. Comedy is about people who are, who should not succeed, who are lowly, lying, sniveling, cheating people who somehow succeed in spite of the fact that they lack any and all moral character. This to the Greeks was the heart of comedy. And ultimately this remains true. The heart of comedy is ultimately about bad behavior. There is nothing funny about someone who is good at what they do. There is nothing funny about someone who lives a pure good life. There is nothing funny about someone who has no faults. Comedy is based on our faults, at least on a certain degree, because technically comedy has expanded over the decades. I'm sorry, centuries, which I'm not going to discredit all the comedy that came after the ancient Greeks. That would be dumb. We now understand comedy a little bit bigger than that, but the underlying element of comedy remains the same. Characters written in this manner appear in all sorts of comedies and shows. Now, the problem is, is when people find those characters too relatable. Once you become find a character who is meant to be the pivot point of the comedy, the person whose bad behavior the comedy is centered around, we lose sight of the lessons that we're supposed to be learning from their bad behavior. Studies have actually shown that when we laugh at other people's misfortune, we fail to learn from their mistakes because our brain wants to desperately believe that those things couldn't possibly happen to us. It's a big deal. This is why I'm not a huge fan of schadenfreude. I'm very sardonic, but I'm not a huge fan of that, schadenfreude. Schadenfreude, of course, is a German word for finding humor in the suffering of others how very German of them. A friend of mine has been telling me a lot about German stories that they would tell their children. And let me tell you right now, the Germans, weird, dark people. Very weird. But where was I? So the thing that gave me the idea for this is I was watching a, uh, was watching a YouTube show where they were talking about conservopedia and TV shows that conservatives considered 
conservative. And one of the ones on the list was The Office, which is interesting because The Office is definitely politically neutral. I can't express that enough from what I've seen of The Office. I can't think of a more politically neutral show. But that's not what's important for this conversation. The important thing was in the story about, about this, the person who had edited The Office as being a conservative show specifically tried to point to Michael Scott's character, Steve Carell's character, as being, in their opinion, the, per the audience insert character. And this is important to understand The Office. He is not. The Office is literally sh a show built around the idea of having a bad, cringy boss. He is the central point of ridicule for the program. You're not meant to think of yourself as Michael Scott because Michael Scott is an idiot. Michael Scott is someone who tries too hard and doesn't really know how to be a boss. In fact, that's the entire concept of The Office. This is, it is a show about an office that has to put up with a ridiculous boss. In this case, Michael Scott. If we relate to, if we relate to Michael Scott too much, we will lose sight of the fact that Michael Scott could teach us all some valuable lessons about how not to be a terrible boss if we were paying attention and also recognized his actions as being the actual problems. Conservatives apparently interpret this show as Michael Scott trying to deal with the absurdity of living in a more progressive world, which is a hell of a read on it. It's a hell of a read, especially since even this reading leaves out the fact that Michael Scott is the one meant to be learning the lessons. Also, the interpretation of Michael Scott being the audience insert character is wildly off base when the audience insert characters are clearly Jim and Pam. Which actually, along with the theory that I'm purporting here, might be why it took so long for audiences to realize that Jim is a total piece of shit. As far as a human being goes, because he was made into this likable, sarcastic, silly, fun guy at the office who was semi-relatable, a little bit of a slacker, but also does his work. It goes on and on, but it's essentially, it's essentially a show. It's essentially a show where uh, we're a, uh, we're a very standard individual played by Jim. Uh, we're a very standard individual like Jim, essentially, uh, you know, bullies his neurodiverse coworker you know, Shroot, played by Rain Wilson. But I'm getting off topic here. The point of the show is, well, the point I'm making here is that Jim is the self-insert audience member for men. And we'll get a little bit more into that in a second here. And by that, I mean men. The thing about that is, is though, is that many people watch the show and do not realize all the negative behaviors that Jim has. Frankly, I don't relate to Jim at all. And in fact, I relate to very few people in the office. Okay, that's not true. You know who I relate to in the office? Creed. Creed is the number one character I relate to in the office. 
The only difference between me and him and how we work in an office is that he's much more open about his drug use than I would be in an office. I keep that shit on the down low when working in an office. Those things are full of squares. And I'm not just talking about the cubicles. Maybe that's why they give us cubicles, to form us into squares. Just a thought. But anyways, the point is, is that if you are relating to Michael Scott, you might have a problem. You might be failing to learn the lessons of Michael Scott. Michael Scott is essentially a man-child who doesn't know how to take care of himself, let alone the office. And the show shows us this repeatedly over the course of the program. He wants to be liked. He wants to be in charge. He wants to be successful. But it can't be any clearer than that he has someone who has somehow failed upwards. How did this happen? Who knows? Although to be fair, Michael Scott is the most benign of the examples we could use to talk about this. Some much more serious characters throughout throughout, uh, comedy and both media in general have been much worse role models than Michael Scott. Michael Scott is just an inconsiderate idiot man-child who can't take care of himself and often drags other people down with him. There's a whole bunch of people out here nowadays, though, that think that characters like Rick from Rick and Morty is a badass. And in a way, they're not entirely wrong. But if you fixate on how cool Rick is while you're watching the show, then you're probably missing the general point of Rick and Morty, which is that he is fucking terrible, just the worst. All of his own suffering are related to his own faults. He is a disaster who brings danger and havoc to him and his family. Was he once kind of a, was he once one of the better Ricks in the multiverse of Ricks? Yes, morally, yes. But after his family was killed by a different Rick from the multiverse of Ricks, he turned into a drunken piece of shit as he failed to cope with his own grief. When you break it down, the central element of most comedies relies on one of two concepts. And I will use King of the Hill here as an example uh, for both. King of the Hill initially as a program was set up in a way where the show is about Hank Hill, a very conservative minded Texan fellow, slowly learning important lessons about life as he interacts with the more progressive aspects of society frequently forcing him to learn from people he would rather kick in the ass. And this was the initial setup. Hank Hill has a problem. Hank Hill learns to be better. And if you pay attention to the course of the show, you will watch Hank Hill transform from a very angry, aggressive man into a much more even-keeled, almost wise person. On the flip side of this, realm of comedy is of course Peggy. The difference between Hank and Peggy is that the show is not set up for Peggy to learn lessons. Despite her superior intelligence and having generally more progressive ideas than Hank, although to be fair it's shown to us numerous times that she doesn't really understand these progressive ideas. Peggy doesn't typically learn anything. 
Peggy is occasionally humbled, but it never truly changes her behavior. Peggy is too full of herself to ever truly change. And these are the two sort of basic back and forth of comedy. You see, because for comedy, most good comedy does focus on people who are flawed, who can't seem to overcome themselves. That is one of the primary roots of comedy. Hank Hill is someone who is slowly learning the lessons as he becomes a better person. These lessons built into the very structure of narrative of the show. Peggy, however, is someone who just won't change. Another great example of this Peggy dynamic, possibly the greatest example in all of comedy, is Bojack Horseman. Bojack Horseman is someone who desperately would like to change. But when push comes to shove, he will always reach for the self-destructive option. It is a brutal, brutally honest depiction of a character who suffers from depression. As he struggles to go through life, trying to be better, but as life pushes back, he continuously finds himself becoming more self-destructive. This is where both the tragedy and the comedy of Bojack Horseman comes from. Is that Bojack Horseman is someone who would like to be better. He is someone who would desperately like to be a good person. But every time he reaches for it, it falls between his fingers. This is deeply tragic, but it is also part of the comedy. Bojack suffers because he cannot change. Now, does Bojack grow over the course of the show? Yes, absolutely. But at the end, his foible is so deeply impacted in him that we never really see him truly change. He is forced to keep going on. Life continues around him as he struggles to be a better person, even as his behaviors hurt the people he cares most about and drag him down further into his own sense of failure. Fun fact about Bojack Horseman, if you're watching the show and his roommate Todd, voiced by Aaron Paul, as a particularly silly B-plot going on, then you know you're about to see <clears throat> some extremely dark shit in the A-plot following Bojack. I personally find Bojack very relatable. However, there's never a point in the show where I allow how relatable his character is to me for me to lose sight of the lessons that are meant to be learned. Continuously reaching for self-destructive behavior even, as a, even if we consider it to be a coping mechanism for our own suffering, ultimately will not render us safe from that suffering. But of course, Bojack Horseman isn't the worst type of person you can be. Like I said, there is a tragic element to him and his character. His inability to stop making the worst possible choices in his life when the things get difficult are just what makes Bojack so heart-wrenchingly unique and honest. But let's go a little sillier here. Let's talk about a character who truly stands out in the lexicon 
in a trope of types of characters who are technically worse than Bojack Horseman. These are people who are just bad. And these people frequently show up in comedy. One of the most distinctive ones of these bad characters is, of course, a personal favorite of mine, Eric Cartman. I don't mean he is a badly written character, by the way. I mean he is a bad person. And I don't just mean because he's a cartoon. I mean accepting the reality of a, cart of a paper cutout society. Eric Cartman is a bad person. And that's kind of the point. When Matt and Trey Parker created him, the whole entire idea was that he would be like an Archie Bunker type character who would just hold incredibly vile, offensive beliefs. Now, of course, Archie Bunker is another show that many people will point to and be like, I couldn't make that show today. It's too offensive. Well, I mean, that's an interesting take, but the entire point of Archie Bunker is that Archie Bunker is woke as fuck. Not him as a character, but the show he's on. Every episode, like King of the Hill, is about Archie Bunker being a racist, terrible piece of shit and having to learn lessons about, you know, tolerance. However, Cartman is different from Archie Bunker in the fact that Cartman never learns fucking anything. Cartman is smart, but he uses all of his intelligence for essentially conniving and scheming, preferring to keep the rest of his intellect as ignorant as possible. Cartman is a genius at manipulating people and getting what he wants, but he is at, but he's very ignorant about the actual functioning of the world and other details. He is anti-Semitic, he is racist, but he doesn't see the problem with being these things. Cartman bounces around life being punished for all of his terrible beliefs, but he never learns from these things, including the time he was struck by lightning by God for forming a church that was all about making him $10 million. One of my favorite scenes, one of my favorite scenes in in a South Park episode is when Eric Cartman decides to form a Christian rock band because he's made a bet with Kyle that he can make, that he can earn a gold record. So Eric puts together a Christian rock band also featuring Tolkien and, and Butters as his backup band. Tolkien and Butters go with him to a meeting with a Christian rock executive, wherein Eric Cartman uses the expression, and if I'm lying, may God strike me down. In that exact moment, both Tolkien and Butters move their chairs slightly away from Eric Cartman and wait for the lightning bolt to hit him. It does not. Uh, I believe that he gets struck by lightning at the end of the episode, though. But that's not the point. The point is, is that Eric Cartman is terrible, and you are meant to recognize that. That is the comedy of Eric Cartman that he is a bad person. He's a bad guy, if you will. But even Trey Parker has con had concerns about his own creation. Trey Parker has talked about sitting on the couch with his nephews watching the show. And when they laugh hysterically at Cartman, he can't help but be concerned that maybe they don't understand the point is that Eric Cartman is not good. 
Eric Cartman and many characters in comedy are not designed to be relatable. They're not designed to be imitated. They are not designed to be these things. If anything, we are meant to learn lessons from their negative behavior. We are meant to understand that we are meant to do the opposite of what they do. This is actually what makes shows like Always Sunny in Philadelphia pretty great. Always Sunny in Philadelphia might be one of the truest comedies ever written because it is a comedy that is not afraid to be comedy. When comedy is afraid, that's when we get these everyman insert characters whose essential role is to be relatable. This is the weakening of comedy. This is the kind of bullshit we saw with shows like Full House and other TGI Friday programs, where the idea now was that we would find comedy in the wholesomeness of everything and dads would be generally competent. Many, many societal critics like to complain about the treatment of dads in comedies and how they've become stupid and, and whatnot. However, they fail to understand that, yeah, Comedies are not meant to be about dads who are good at being dads. J just so you know, that's, that's not how comedy works. In fact, arguably, it's better that they be dumb because then at least they're just stupid and not terrible garbage like Archie Bunker. But always studying in Philadelphia is pure comedy, at least from the perspective of how the Greeks would view comedy. Throughout the show, it is made clear to us that we are neither meant to relate to anyone in the gang, nor like or respect anyone in the gang. Occasionally, are Charlie and Mac occasionally likable? Sure, but they're also bigoted and stupid. Easily, I mean, is it fair to say that out of the people in the gang, they are probably the least horrible? Uh, yeah, but that's a pretty low bar when Dennis is a straight up sociopath as the show implement, basically implies throughout its runtime. Does, does, Mac, does Mac understand or have problems with many of the ways that Dennis treats women? Yeah, but almost any outsider would. And it's worth noting that Mac, before coming to, to terms with the fact that he is gay, is the most homophobic in the group up until that moment. Charlie is the most uneducated of the group with the most confusing worldview of any of them. And then of course, you have Danny DeVito's character, parents to both Dee and Dennis. Danny DeVito's character used to be a man of exceptional wealth and now he lives deliberately in squalor choosing to be drunk and on drugs whenever possible. And of course, there's D, sweet narcissistic D, who has a kind of an idea of what a good person should be like, but isn't truly capable of rising to be that. Her behaviors are often pretty bad. In fact, if there's anything that can be said for anyone in the group, is that they all look pretty morally superior to Dennis, who is just the worst but they are all incredibly flawed and you're not meant to find any of them relatable. They come off as Philadelphia white trash and they're supposed to. Their viewpoints and struggles to be normal or progressive are meant to represent how confused these people are. 
it has been pointed out that this show actually does good progressive representation if you come into the show understanding its main conceit, which is that everyone in it is terrible. In many ways, I would say that It's Always Sunny in Philadelphia is the better version of Seinfeld. Oh, I know you all love Seinfeld. I'm going to be honest, I don't love Seinfeld, and I mean both the comedian and the show. Maybe I should sit down and try and give Seinfeld another chance at some point. I mean, I'm not the comedian, the show itself. I just, I can't, I can't get past how bad of an actor Jerry Seinfeld is. Like, and I'm a very, I'm very forgiving of bad acting, but Jesus Christ, Jerry Seinfeld, they paid you that much money to just look permanently surprised? What the fuck? Where was I? Right. However, I have to give credit where credit is due. At least the good thing about Seinfeld, the thing where I have to be like, well, that was a good thing they did there, is that Seinfeld also understands the always sunny conceit, which is that no one in the show is good. In fact, I don't find anyone on that show truly relatable. Well, maybe Kramer a little bit, but that's because I've always been a fucking weirdo. But Seinfeld is also based around the basic idea that these characters are pretty fucking unlikable. Each one of them is terrible, even at points bigoted. But, you know, it's the 90s, so not against minorities. Well, not against ethnic minorities. They were bigoted towards mostly gay people. Very common for the time. It was the 90s. But the point of it was is that they were wrote a comedy where characters were not meant to learn lessons. And that is the entire concept of Seinfeld, a show where people are terrible, spend their time complaining and being unproductive, and frequently fail, and yet still don't learn from it. In many ways, it was a return to comedy during a period of time where the edgiest thing on television was still The Simpsons. Meanwhile, as most of comedy had been taken over by TGI Friday, where wholesomeness was equal to the amount of comedy. The wholesomeness, of course, being bits that don't end in ha 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 on the laugh track, but instead end in aww. Yep, I'm looking at you, Full House. Which is not to say that there cannot be wholesomeness in comedy. I'm told the guy that runs, I've been told the guy who writes Family Circle Family Circus, I'm sorry. You, it was meant to be Circle. But the guy who writes Family Circle, bah, I did it again. But the guy who writes Family Circus is apparently very funny when he does stand-up comedy as the MC at the like comic strip awards, I have been informed by, uh, by a person I took a cartooning class from. But I'm willing to accept that wholesome comedy exists. But I think it's very important that we as a people start to understand Characters being related, relatable is not that important. In fact, being overly relatable to a character is probably going to be a problem. You see, for starters, it's going to shut off your ability to learn how to empathize with people who are not like you. This is a thing I've actually been able to observe by talking to people. And it seems to be a predominant problem specifically amongst straight white conservative men. Not to call anyone out specifically, I'm sure there are women who have this problem too. However, 
it's worth noting that straight white cisgendered men tend to have a big problem with relating to characters who are not at least men. I once had a work supervisor who was an all overall decent fella. He was a conservative, and I knew we didn't agree on politics, so I tried not to talk about it, but we both loved comic books and superhero movies. But one conversation we had was fairly enlightening to me, where he was talking about how, how certain shows or comic book adaptations just didn't have a character in them for him to relate to. I believe we were talking about Captain Marvel or something. And I thought this was very interesting because like I said before, I have grown up not finding most characters in fiction relatable, especially main characters. And I've never had a problem absorbing media that stars women and other minorities. I've absorbed lots of them. I like to watch things written from other people's perspectives. To me, this is a normal function of media. Media is not meant to simply reflect myself back at me. If I want media that does that, I should be out there fucking making it. But this appears to be something that straight white cis men feel entitled to, almost in a weird way, which is why they seem to get very upset anytime non-white people start showing up in media that they consider, you know, white people media. And frankly, I, generally speaking, don't give a shit about this most of the time. Are there some awkwardnesses to it? I guess. I mean, if your dead shot in Suicide Squad is going to be Will Smith, then I guess you can't do the story from, De from Suicide Squad where Deadshot is sent to infiltrate a white supremacist group, uh, which is an actual storyline in a Suicide Squad comic. You can't really do that with Will Smith. I mean, unless you were going to make it like a Dave Chappelle bit or something. But also, you know, like, we don't really need that story. It was a single-issue story. Now, I will say a thing I have noticed is that these white straight cis men typically have a few exceptions on their uh, a list of actors they consider an exception. Like... Like they were okay with Will Smith playing Deadshot. They were okay with that because they were okay with Will Smith. Will Smith has part of his success is becoming is being a very a very sort of mainstream, non-threatening black man. Although after slapping Chris Tucker in the face, I, not oh my god, it's called Chris Rock, Chris Tucker, Jesus Christ. Some people may feel differently about how threatening he seems. But generally speaking, a lot of his success in the 90s and early 2000s was due to the fact that he was a black star who came across as very non-threatening to white people. And white people tended to embrace him throughout that period. He also, however, and this is a common one, cited Idris Elba. Yeah, that's right. Most, what I've discovered is that Idris Elba is just so masculine that most straight white cis dudes are okay with him playing a white character, at least from what I can tell. This dude, like, Idris, I don't know what it is about Idris Elba. Like, I'd watch Idris Elba play anything too, but like, I, I don't have this other barrier preventing me from seeing other actors in the roles either. So I don't know what it is about Idris Elba. I mean, good for Idris Elba, like, cause he's very black. <clears throat> and, and so, like, yeah, no, he doesn't even have the Will Smith thing going on for him. I think it's I think it's just the sheer 
uh, testosterone that he emanates. I think that I think that there's uh, something about cis men that they really want that out of a character, and they don't feel like they get it very often. So I think I, that's just a theory. I don't know why Idris Elba seems to be the the black guy that most that most like kind of like close to racist white guys can handle. I don't know what that's about. That's just the theory I'm operating on at this time. Where was I? Right. So I think that this is a problematic perspective on fictional characters for a number of reasons. Uh, for starters, for starters, like I mentioned, it's bad for our sense of empathy. If we if we read stories about other people from other perspectives, it's going to give us a greater insight into the way that human beings function. There is a, an extreme value in absorbing the cultural artifacts of other people and learning how to expand their minds and ideas. The idea to me that I shouldn't be interested in a piece of media because it stars a woman or someone of a different orientation or uh, gender or, or, or race is, is, is foreign to me very foreign to me i don't even understand that concept and you see here's here's the thing straight white cis men that you have to understand that you feel entitled to this thing because everyone else in society has just had to shut up and take it as straight white cis heroes were paraded through to us for over a hundred years of media like jesus christ Take a chill pill, okay? It's fine. It's cool even. We can have some fucking diversity up in this bitch. Learn to expand your mind. So right here we have the two problems. When we find characters too relatable, we become less... We prevent ourselves from being empathetic to other types of characters. Also, once we become too empathetic to a character, we may fail to learn the lessons we are meant to learn from that character. We will look at them and go, ha ha, that guy's right and everybody's wrong, and fail to learn the very lessons that Michael Scott struggles to learn. Aristotle believed that the key to theater was that it was both educational and entertaining. When people complain about woke media, then they should shut the fuck up because Aristotle thinks that media absolutely should have messages in it and absolutely should instruct. At some point over history, people were suddenly like, well, what if we just had media to distract our brains from thinking blah, 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 blah. And we made that media a lot because any hack can make that kind of media. The other problem is, is that viewing characters as people we should relate to is that we may, in fact, not only miss the lessons that they were supposed to learn, but take the opposite lessons of what they were supposed to teach us. I listened to a debate recently where the age of consent came up in the debate and somebody unironic, actually, no, it wasn't age consent, it was age gaps, sorry, um, unironically tried to use the story of Lolita to defend their stance 
on why it was okay to debate to date a teenager which i don't know if you're familiar with the book lolita it's kind of that that's the opposite of the message of that book like it's literally a book about a pedophile who is semi seduced by an adolescent by an adolescent child who is younger in the book than in the movie by the way and they have an illicit affair and but the whole but the thing is is he's not the good he's not a good guy huh the main character in Lolita you are meant to recognize as a problematic criminal of a person and yet i'm listening to a debate between these between these two people and this fucking weirdo is like trying to use this book as an example of how that unequal power dynamic is good that's insane like that is the worst reading of a book and character i can possibly even imagine over i can't be entirely surprised by this for centuries satire has been mistaken for the things it was mocking a lot in fact one of the things i find most annoying in movie critic reviews is i literally my entire life i've been reading movie critic reviews for movies that are meant to satire our society's obsession with violence and they always just end with this movie is obsessed with violence it's like okay I, look i'm not saying the movie gamer is like incredible satire or anything it, it it's it, it's not a great movie but like to fault it for having a lot of excessive violence when the entire premise of the stories that are our society is obsessed with violence kind of kind of misses the point that is the point satire is meant to hold up a disgusting mirror to our faces and show us what's wrong with us satire is meant to be a form of ridicule that is often mistaken for the thing it is ridiculing a great example i'm sure you've heard me give before if you're a regular listener is the song fight for your right to party by the beastie boys because this anthem if you will was actually written by the beastie boys in an attempt to mock hair metal and it's vapid it is vapid vacuous ideals of partying as much as you want and teenage rebellion sung at you by 20 year olds however many did not realize that this was meant to be a mockery. And over time, fight for your right to party was viewed as the thing it was mocking, that being a party anthem. Overly relatable characters and themes potentially risk the audience losing track of what the show is meant to teach us. In fact, this is actually something that sitcoms exploit. Many sitcoms lose their steam at some point in their run but manage to keep limping along for two three maybe even more seasons of mediocrity because the audience has already identified the characters in the sitcom as their friends 
And once your brain starts to identify fictional characters as your relatable friends, then you want to have them around whether or not their show is still any good or whether or not their show was ever good. You know, like Friends, which was never good. It just played into a typical fantasy that we all have, which is that we will grow up and our and we will despite our struggles, we will always have our friends around us. It's a beautiful fantasy. Of course, we grow up and eventually discover that the friends we've made over the course of our lives, you know, will have, will get married and have jobs and move across the country from you. And this is normal. Because, you know, capitalism forces you to move. Now, look, I'm not saying that we should take relatable characters out of media and whatnot. Because it's also technically impossible. There are going to be incidences where people write characters that just happen to be relatable to random weirdo individuals. And I'm not even saying that the Bertolt Brecht theory works. And by that, I mean the concept of alienating your audience so that they can remove themselves from your art intellectually and be able to analyze it critically. I don't know if that is a solution to this problem. I just wanted to bring up that this problem exists to make possibly viewers of media a little bit more self-aware and aware of what they're taking in. The Greeks believed that comedy was meant to be a form of ridicule against those who were terrible. So when you are watching comedy, you must ask yourself, what behaviors is the comedy ridiculing? And that will tell you a lot about both what the message of the comedy is, the person telling you the comedy, and what the comedy is trying to inform you of. Think about that the next time you're absorbing some comedy. Thank you for listening to Ruben Uncut. Please like and subscribe wherever you're listening, but also check us out on Spotify because it really helps me out with Spotify who are slave drivers. I'm kidding. I'm kidding. Haha. Blinks. Blinks eyes rapidly. Haha. But uh, yeah, please like and subscribe and check out the YouTube channel, which uh, maybe that'll motivate me to take better care of it because I'm slacking. Also, you can email the show at rubenuncut at gmail.com. Thank you very much. I hope you don't find me that related.